welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 27th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of uh, financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt, on uh, the 2nd of January, 2020. Feels weird to say. Good to see you, Mark. Yeah. You've been out of the office for a couple of days. Yeah. You feel refreshed and ready to go? I do. Ready to go. Yeah. Ready to kick off the new year and new decade with a hot and fresh start. That makes two of us. Yeah. I'm ready, man. Yeah. So I've already written the 2020 date a couple times this morning. So it it's a little feels, weird. Feels it feels weird to do. It yeah. is a little weird. Yeah. So, um, well, we hope everyone uh, enjoyed the holidays and had a good new year. And um, you know, we're excited to, to kick off the new decade and new year and um, continue to grow and uh, make this podcast better for every everyone that's listening. So, you know, I, I really hope people are getting a lot out of it. Um, you know, not only, you know, current market events, things that we're noticing, the financial planning topics of the week. You know, I, uh, I really hope that they take advantage of it in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as always, we'll recap the performance um, for the month of December and the full year of 2019. So um, this data is from December 31st, uh, market close, and the data is from stockcharts.com. So for the month of December, uh, the S&P 500 index was up 2.86% and up 28.88% for the year. The Dow was up 1.87% for the month and up 25.34% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.54% for the month and up 3523 for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index was excuse me, up 2.79% for the month and 25.39% for the year. So small caps made a bit of a charge in the second half of the year because it was lagging um, earlier in the year. If you go back and listen to previous podcasts, it yep. was always, you know, trailing behind the major indexes. So Correct. good news for the market. Um, the international index X United States was up 3.09% for the month. So a strong month for international uh, stocks and was up 18.97% for 2019. Uh, the three-month treasury uh, currently yielding 1.55%, the two-year treasury 1.58%, and the 10-year is at 1.92%. So that 10-year is inching up here. I mean, the next psychological hit is that 2%, 2 even. 2% number, yeah. And then that's what you're probably going to see at mainstream news. Right, right. right. Um, so the markets finished off the year pretty strong, Matt. Um, there really weren't any major blips, only a couple here and there, but really not even noteworthy of, of discussing. No, I mean, people kind of behind the scenes, you and I are reading research of concerns about just liquidity behind the scenes with just year end and banks, but kind of seems that the Fed stepped in and, and really, you know, let banks borrow as much as they wanted on an overnight lending basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really didn't see anything in the credit markets near the end of the year. You had a melt up in, in equity prices. Um, so nothing that is kind of flashing warning going into the end of the year. So everything we kind of have been talking about, I think kind of made its way through the system. Right, exactly. 
Um, and then, you know, as we go uh, into earnings seasons, it could get a little more quiet uh, before earnings start to report. So um, earnings really kick off with the banks starting on uh, Tuesday, um, January 14th, Matt. And yep. that's so the just first real major, quick to, major... to, to educate listeners, when Mark says a quiet period, um, companies cannot be talking um, about their earnings or about things going on uh, roughly two to three weeks leading up till their earnings announcement. So you tend to have not a lot of news flow from these um, companies leading up to their earnings release. Is mm -hmm. that the best way to yeah, say it, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is kind of the time where we'll see um, uh, companies that are expected to report strong uh, results for the fourth quarter will make their pre-earnings runs and companies that aren't expected to do well will make their pre-earnings falls um, when you know Wall Street's placing their bets on who's going to report well and who's not going to report well. Um, but overall, we might uh, just chop around for a little bit here and might have some more activity in individual names, but maybe um, not as much in the major indexes. Yeah, so the bulk of the names are going to report the... Um third and last week of the month is the bulk of the names say in the S&P 500. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So like Apple, Boeing, MasterCard, Facebook, GE and McDonald's. Uh, yep. And Starbucks, that's all on the 29th, it looks like. And these are estimated dates. But yeah, it looks like, you know, the, the last two weeks of the month there, it's going to be pretty, um, pretty busy in terms of earnings reports. Yeah, McDonald's, I just to throw it out there just to be specific there on January 21st, I was just picking one. Yeah. So I yep. apologize. Yep. Um, so US and China, I heard Matt, um, are expected to sign a phase one deal on January 15th here in the US. Correct. I saw that as well. That'll be interesting. Um, is there anything else you want to say regarding that? No, just that hopefully, you know, we'll see what happens if that is uh, the date that it happens but as we both know that you know things These have things gotten change. pushed back uh if the past is indicative of future uh dealings then we all know that this is probably a 50 50 if it gets <laughs> toss done. up right now the other thing that was interesting mark i saw with that announcement is that it will also kick off the beginning of phase two talks mm -hmm. now um my personal opinion is um assuming phase one gets signed on the 15th i think wall street's going to be very um, they're not going to move. The market's not going to move to any sort of phase two headlines because realistically, nothing's going to happen until past the election after yeah, this. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I don't expect the market to move much on anything regarding a phase two deal. Right. I just my two cents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last piece of news from, from the past week is that, um, you know, markets are going to be watching different, uh, economic data this upcoming month such as the december jobs report so is there anything you want to add to that no i mean i mean economically you know the the raw data that we've been getting mark especially um you know about the consumer has been good slash strong lately mm -hmm. so i think the market and us are going to be looking at that raw data to make sure that that trend continues yeah so you know that data is going to be coming out so uh, i don't expect any change that I've seen. Do right. You, have you seen anything? to? No, no, I haven't either. Yeah. I mean, um, so I mean, like, for example, you know, Amazon came out, they're a good barometer and they said, you know, retail spending on their system was the highest it's ever been. Yeah. And that was just a week ago. And so you got to start reading the tea leaves from these different companies and relate that to where the consumer stands. So, again, that's just one data point. 
but it, I think it does point to a still a strong consumer. And remember, the consumer drives two thirds of our U.S. economy. Yeah. And I guess I got a question for you on that. So I saw and was reading some stuff the other week about um, how a lot of companies like Amazon um, and I know Peloton does this, too, is they're letting people pay um, for things monthly without any interest. Yes. So is that a indicator to you of any sort of, you know, you think the consumer is going to stay strong or you think it's going to begin to weaken just because, you know, these companies are becoming more and more lenient to keep consumers spending. Um, so I just thought it was an interesting data point that, you no, know, I mean, these companies are. But my, my initial gut reaction to that is I think with the banking environment getting um, a little bit more, you know, friendly to loaning out money, you're starting to see that trickle through the system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you take an example of a Peloton and, you know, we own the equipment in our office gym. Mm -hmm. You know, you take a piece of equipment that costs several thousand dollars, you know, what's a quick way to sell more of them, you know, allow people to pay over time in a very easy way. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me at kind of this point in the economic cycle that we're starting to see that. Yeah. I mean, does it point that, you know, we're near the peak consumption who knows <laughs> who knows right but you know from a standpoint of you know stock market corporate earnings consumer spending these are positive data points for the time being yeah yeah i agree um okay well let's move into um some tweets articles and research from the week so i'll let you uh kick it off this week matt all right mark i got a couple so uh first is just overall what i would call cash flow into stocks so with the stock market at a 52 week high, you know, you and I look at data that will give us some um, idea on who's buying stocks and who's not, right? right? So the first piece of data is from the head of research at Top Down Charts. He posted a tweet on December 28th at 2.54 p.m. And it was a chart that is from State Street, okay? They're a big custodian uh, for institutional investors, Mark, as you know. Yep. And the chart was indicating here that, you know, you're not seeing institutional investors following the rally into stocks in the fourth quarter, meaning institutions were not big, big buyers of stocks despite them doing well in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. So when, when someone says, well, Matt, what is like an institution? An example would be like a pension fund, right? As an example, an yep. endowment, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're really not seeing them move into stocks. Now, I think what you could see, Mark, is maybe some rebalancing coming up here in the first quarter where these pension funds say, well, we'll meet and they'll say, what's gonna be our strategy for 2020? And they might change, but the data is indicating they were not big buyers in the fourth quarter. Right. Okay. Right. Now, yep. the other thing that he posted, same gentleman, head of research, top down charts, tweet posted December 28th at 2.53 p.m. It was in regards to hedge funds and looking at flows of hedge funds. Now, uh, for listeners, hedge funds tend to be uh, more active in raising and lowering stock exposure. And the chart that was posted, um, the source that he cited on the chart at the bottom was Normura, which is a research firm. And this chart goes back to 2017, Mark. And in plain English, it's showing the highest level 
of stock exposure on a long basis, meaning they are anticipating prices going higher um, going back two years. Mm -hmm. So again, institutions, long-term money has not been buying in the fourth quarter. Maybe the more short-term money, hot money has been. Yeah. So just yeah. throwing out data points. Yeah. It's right. Two different, uh, I guess, two different um, views on the market from from some big players in the financial industry. So I'm going to speculate. My speculation is the institutions, the real long-term money, at a certain point, they're not going to be getting the returns in bonds. Rates have come down. And as the bonds that they're in mature, they're going to need to return. And they're not going to get it in the bond market. So where's that money going to go? Yeah. And stocks could be one of those avenues. Mm -hmm. And we're talking very big picture, big theme things. But, you know, down the road, you know, a pension fund ain't going to hack it with the returns they need to do with 40 or 50% stock exposure. It's just right. not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And maybe some of that, who knows, maybe I'm just speculating here, but maybe some of that is that they're concerned about what's going to happen with the election and, sure. and all that. So sure. um, could be interesting. I'll turn it back to you. Um, so this, uh, chart was, um, again, from Mr. Thomas of top down charts, uh, from December 28th. So he posts some good charts every week that Matt and I usually look at. Um, and it's an update on the worst performing S and P 500 index sector the past 12 months. And quite frankly, the past decade, yep. um, has been energy. So, um, you know, while the stock market, uh, has hit all-time highs several times over over the past decade. The en energy sector barely gained over the past 10 years, um, and oil prices have come down. Um, so the S&P 500 energy index over the last decade, Matt, has only risen 6.3%. That's, that's a return over 10 years. Over 10 that's years. That's not annualized. That's not annualized. Correct. That's starting from zero, 6.3%. Okay. At, the, at the end of 2019. And just to follow that up, um, you know, light crude oil uh, is down 23%. So again, um, commodities have been getting absolutely, you know, killed with the strong dollar and with uh, the strong stock market over the last decade. Um, and I could even contend, you know, more fuel efficient cars here in the US, right. on top of the fact that these drillers are more efficient uh, technologically and drilling. So they are producing a lot more oil than they used to at the same well a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And all these things have been weighing on the prices of, you know, West Texas crude. Yeah. Yeah. So our energy stocks cheap. I think so. But they're also cheap for a reason. Um, yep. So I think it's taking a shot in the dark, kind of, if you want to try to, you know, pick something up off the floor, then energy could be it. But, you know, this could be just could go on for another six months or another five years or another decade. No one really knows. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. So, you know, so for listeners, what Mark and I kind of look at is, you know, big theme changes, you know, one or two quarters of outperformance, say by a sector is not going to deviate, you know, a drastic change when you're looking at a 10 year trend. Right. So just kind of just a little tidbit there. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, I got one for you. So, you know, how has the market performed, Mark, after a period of consolidation like we saw after the fourth quarter of 2018? Okay. So uh, to remind listeners, the fourth quarter of 2018 was the worst single quarter for the market going back a decade, right? So 
the same gentleman at Top Down Charts, he had a ton of them, good stuff. Yeah. He posted a uh, piece of research, and it's from Funsat and Bloomberg, okay? And it looks at similar periods where the market consolidated. Because remember, after the fourth quarter sell-off of 2018, we didn't get past that high it made in 2018 till just this past September. Yeah. Right? It took that long. Yep. Right? So it goes back and it says, in similar time periods... Uh, back in 53, there was a recession, 1953. And after its consolidation, the market uh, moved up another 73%. Uh, and this is the S&P 500. And then the next one uh, was in the early 80s, you know, post-inflation. After its consolidation period, the market moved up another 49%. And then um, in the 2014 to 2016 mini recession that we had, you know, the market moved up another 30% after that consolidation period. So the chart is kind of relating to people that say, well, after such a move last year in 2019, Mark, stocks have to be capped out. Yeah. And I think the reason he posted this chart was to just give data points, not to say the market is going to continue going up but to give you data points of similar times where the market consolidated just to give some perspective. Yeah. That's the best way I can say it. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, a real life example, just the other day, I was talking to someone who's not in the market currently and um, said that, he, you know, he, he knows he needs to, but he's uncomfortable doing it at these levels. And, you know, I think that that's, you, you know, just a, a loser's game. It is to... because by the time you're comfortable, the gains are already in. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, kind of interesting if it were easy and comfortable you would not be able to get the returns that you do right i mean the reason that people over a long term are able to get higher rates of return than money market and cds is that the fact that there is risk there is volatility and if you're putting money to work only at points in the market when it feels comfortable that's not a strategy that i would recommend right okay yeah yeah, what man? On me and you always say when it when it it's the most painful painful and feels like the worst decision to make is usually the time when you need to do it. I mean, the last time where it was extremely painful to hit the buy button, I'm talking like I was cringing was Christmas Eve of last year. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, and I'm, I'm we were buying as much as as we could in the last 15 minutes because things were tanking so fast. You know, and that was not that was not comfortable to hit that buy button. No. But then retrospectively, you know, we're high fiving each other, mm -hmm. you know, six, nine months, 12 months later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, one more here. Um, and this is from uh, a person um, on Twitter. His name is Holger uh, Shapitz. And he posted this on December 27th. It was a chart from Bloomberg. Um, and it showed the combined market cap of Apple and Microsoft um, and compared it to the entire market cap of the German stock market. Matt. Yeah, I think that guy's German. So he's probably why he was doing that. Yeah, that analogy. So Apple and Microsoft alone are larger in terms of market cap than the whole um, German stock market. You're talking like Daimler, Chrysler, like all those names, right? Yeah. Yep. And two of ours are worth more, more than the than entire, entire German stock exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking before this and, um, you know, people always say, well, you know, Apple and Microsoft and Amazon are, they're all 
too big in, in the index. And I was listening or reading something the other week that um, mentioned that at one point, I think it was in the early 2000s or late 90s, don't quote me on the date, but at one point, IBM was 9% of the overall index, where Apple is only 4.5%. So just to put that in perspective as well. That, that's an excellent point. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting just to see that, you know, two U.S. companies are, are larger than um, the total stock market of, of Germany. So that's hardcore. that was an interesting, that's interesting hardcore. topic. Um, okay, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Let's do it. Um, it's an article on investmentnews.com, and it was titled, Advisors Expect More Roth Conversions Under Secure Act by uh, Mark Schaff, Jr., and I thought this was good to bring up, Matt, because it's kind of a follow up to last week's discussion. Um, and I think the the biggest change is the elimination of the IRA stretch provision for beneficiaries inheriting IRAs um, from people other than their spouse. All right. So I just wanted to. Well, let's. Can I run the fire drill? What that what that means in plain yeah, English? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in essence, the way this Secure Act works now is if someone passes and you're married. The, and you have your uh, spouse as the primary beneficiary for 100%, your spouse can take that IRA over, it goes into their name, and life moves on. However, if you're transitioning money to the next generation, the way it was prior to the SECURE Act getting passed is your beneficiaries could stretch the withdrawals over their lifetime, mm -hmm. whereas the SECURE Act listeners is bringing that just to a maximum of 10 years 10 years yeah so you have a upon the data passing when you get that being the next generation you have 10 years to fully withdraw that ira yeah which if it's a traditional ira that's taxable event when you make those withdrawals yeah exactly and i think a lot of, this is going to take a lot of education for a lot of people because if people don't really realize that and they inherit an account and then 10 years goes by oh boy and they have to do it all in one year that's that's huge. That's a huge, huge tax hit for a lot of people that have a decent balance in their traditional IRAs. Well, I could throw them in, in the highest tax bracket yeah, in certain, yeah. certain cases. So um, so I think this was a good point made by by this article that, you know, advisors are going to be pushing more people to do Roth conversions if um, passing on wealth to the next generation is, is important to clients. Um, so the article says that the bill requires most non-spouse beneficiaries of IRAs to take distributions over 10 years instead of over their lifetimes, like you said, Matt. That limitation on so-called stretch IRAs could cause a stampede toward Roth IRAs. Converting from a traditional IRA, which allows tax-free contributions and then taxes withdrawals, to a Roth IRA, which applies the tax on contributions rather than withdrawals, would ease what could be a substantial tax bill for IRA inheritors after a decade. So people who have saved $1 million or more in an IRA and plan to pass it on to someone other than their spouses should consider doing Roth conversions, said Ed Slot, president of Ed Slot & Company. So I think this is a pretty big planning opportunity for advisors and their clients, Matt. Um, and again, like I said, especially if passing wealth to the next generation is important to them. Yeah, there's so many variables, Mark. That's why this, there, there's going to be no, hey, this is the rule of thumb. I'm going to give listeners an example. So, you know, you're the parent and you are in your late 80s, right? And let's say you're in a relatively low tax bracket. 
Well, let's say you're, you're, the, you're the last one living between you and your spouse, and that money's going to go to the next generation, and you have two kids, and they're both high-income earners. It probably would make sense to be converting that at your low tax bracket, so that way when the money does go, you know, your, your kids aren't taking it out at their high tax rate. So I'm giving you a, a one-off example mm -hmm. to where it could be justifiable. Right, exactly. But there are so many variables that go into this. I think it's going to be dangerous for the investment community. And you see these commercials from the big brokerage firms. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all on this. No, I don't think there will be either. And, um, you know... I like you said, it's just going to be, it's going to be tough. It's going to be on a case by case basis. It really will. Um, so, but I think, you know, Roth conversions is one way to help mitigate some of this. Exactly. Um, but just to be clear, people, even if it's a Roth IRA you're inheriting, you still need to deplete it in 10 years. That's and right. People so are like, you, you know, Mark or Matt, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to pay tax on it anyway. Well, the government doesn't want the beneficiary to take advantage of tax-free tax growth yeah. um, in a Roth IRA. So, right. you know, they're going to nip that in the butt too. So even if it's a Roth IRA, even though you're not going to pay tax on it, by the end of 10 years, the account still needs to be depleted. Yeah, I mean, where my mind goes is you, know, you take that next generation that's inheriting that and they're converting it. They're having to take the forced withdrawals from the Roth, put it in an after-tax brokerage account. All of a sudden, that client might not be used to a 1099 coming in the mail mm -hmm. that shows interest mark, yeah. dividends, capital gains. You know, that's going to be an education process for the next generation that maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with investing that say their parents did. Yeah. And that, that's where, you know, when they can find a trusted advisor that they enjoy to work with that can spend time educating them on these on these factors, I think it's going to be big. So, you know. As our industry gets more and more complex um, and you have to make these types of decisions, I think it just puts practices like ours in the driver's seat to really provide those services. Yeah, no, I so agree. That's my, that's my little plug right there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, so we don't have any questions uh, submitted from listeners today, but I did want to mention um, that... I completed my New Year's resolution for 2019, Matt. I would love to hear it. Which was um, reading at least 10 pages per day. So I wasn't a big reader growing up, and that's something that I wanted to change, and I didn't really enjoy it. But now that I'm reading stuff that I actually like and not books for English class <laughs> in, <laughs> in high school, um, I really enjoyed it. And it turned out to be 15 books for me this year. Um, so I just wanted to list off a couple of my favorites if people are looking this is for awesome. a good book to read. Let's do it. Go so ahead. the first one I read was Killing Kennedy. Um, so that was a really good book. It was written by Bill O'Reilly. And I, I'm just someone who's like fascinated by stories about past presidents. So I really enjoyed reading that book. Um, and I think it's a really easy read for people. Um, another one is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And I think you would like this one, Matt. Okay. It's about a former, and Chris Voss was a former hostage negotiator for the U.S. Okay. Um, so he, you know, after his career doing that, he moved into the corporate world and helped train executives and employees how to negotiate contracts oh, and salaries I, I and that type already. of thing. So it, that was a pretty cool book that, that I enjoyed, too. Um the next one that I really enjoyed was called Barbarians at the Gate uh, by Brian Burrow and John Heiler. 
And that was about um, the merger of Reynolds and RJR Nabisco back in the day. So that back was in the, in the 80s, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was really, really insightful. It's a long read. It's 544 pages. But um, if people like reading about, about talks about the LBO, corporate the, America, the leverage, yeah, buyout, leverage buyout. Yeah. So, I mean, as us in our industry, I found that extremely um, interesting. And then uh, the last one that I'll mention was this is another finance book. It's called When Genius Failed by uh, Roger Lowenstein. Um, and that one was about um, long-term capital management uh, and their rise as a major player in, in the hedge fund space and just how the unlimited risks that they took eventually led to their downfall. Um, so if you want to you know, read about people that were considered some of the smartest people in the industry starting um, a hedge fund and, you know, couldn't couldn't be wrong in any year for a couple of years. And then it all came crashing down on them uh, when they realized that they had a lot more exposure than than they than they thought they did. And eventually led to, you know, a crash, not even within their own fund, but within markets around the world, too. Sure. so that's that's a really good one too, and most of these were all easy reads. But just wanted to mention a couple of my my favorites from the year. So I love that, um, Mark. Yeah. Do you, now, do you have anything for twenty twenty? You wanna what's your twenty twenty push? You know, I'm still working on it. Okay. Um, I'm still working on it. One of them is uh, to get a road bike and start like biking outside. Be, so in fun. Dayton, there's a lot of um, like some of the best uh, bike paths in the country because yeah. it's so flat here. There are people that travel <laughs> here in the summer on the weekends. They keep second homes here just because our bike paths are the best. Yeah. I hear about yeah. this. So so me and you are both into the Peloton thing, and I want to try to ride outside a little bit. So I know Aaron in our office is, is a biker, so I'm going to try to help, have him help me get started on getting a, a road bike and just biking outside a little more. But I want to come up with something else, too, but I still have to, uh, still have to figure that out. How about you? I love it. All right, I got two this year. So for me, uh, being more proactive – Mm-hmm. And the second thing is self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I always get kind of stuck in is, um, you know, not being up to my standards of being proactive. Yeah. I consider myself a proactive individual, but not where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is just self-care. There's times where, you know, things will come up and I've had to cut out, say, that workout. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I'm I'm treating going forward in 2020, you know, I had to be able to take care of myself so I could take care of others, mm-hmm. right? My family, our clients, this firm. And so, you know, those are going to be my two big priorities for 2020. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's great. I think, you know, for anyone in any industry, a lot of people can uh, sympathize with the fact that sometimes work takes over your life. Sure. And, you know, you forget about the things that are sometimes more important than work. So I think that's you know, great. It's a good thing. Um, okay, well, we'll leave it at that for this week. So thank you for listening to uh, the first episode of the new decade and the 27th episode overall of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we will be back with you uh, next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website, 
That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.